And we begin actually with the Sabbath day. And we read here in chapter 2, in the first three verses, "...thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made." And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Now, don't miss the importance of the Sabbath day. What does it mean when it says God rested from his work? Does it mean God got tired and sat down to rest one day and he'd say, Boy, have I had a big week. This has been a hectic week. I've worked more than 40 hours this week, and I want to tell you, I want to rest. May I say to you, if you look at it like that, that's perfect nonsense. God rested from his work. That means that when God finished his six days, that he looked upon it, and it was very good. And there was nothing else to do. Every time I leave my office, and it used to be a study, but it's really an office. I have work all over the desk, and I try to put some of it in a briefcase and take with me. I have never been able to finish a day, and I can't remember when. I've never been able to sit down and say, I'm through. I finished it. God did. At the end of six days, he rested the seventh day because it's complete. Now, that's one of the greatest spiritual truths that there is. And we are told in Hebrews that we enter into rest. And that word, we enter into his Sabbath. What is that? We enter into his perfect redemption. And when he died for you and me on the cross, he offers us a redemption that you can enter into. And Paul can say, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, I don't even have to lift my little finger to be saved. Jesus did it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. We begin at the fourth verse, and in this particular section, we are coming up now to these two verses, three verses. We have the summary and sum total of the first five days of restoration. Partial creation, of course. Now, let me read this particular section here, beginning at verse 4. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. It says these are the generations. Actually, this word generations means families. This is the book we said at the beginning the book of Genesis is the book not only of beginnings, but the book of the families. These are the families of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. Then will you notice verse 6. 
but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. You see, this was here long before man was here upon the earth. And I think that we now begin to see, discover the purpose of God in chapter 1. What was God doing in chapter 1? Well, he was preparing a home for the man that he had made. And now God is getting ready to move this man into a place here that he has prepared for him. I think that's one of the remarkable things about this particular section. You see, we come now actually again to the method of man's creation, beginning here in verse 7. We have seen in chapter 1 that there was from nothing to inorganic matter. Nothing, and then the inorganic came into existence. That's in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then from the inorganic to the organic, that is to life, and we saw that in chapter 1 and verse 21, where it says God created great whales. And then from then on, all plant life and animal life. But he created animal life. Somebody says, well, didn't he create plant life? Apparently, the plant life had not been destroyed. The seed was apparently already in the earth. I would not want to be dogmatic about that, but that would seem to be the implication here. As we've said... God's told us very little. And then now we have from the organic to man. And there is no natural transition. And evolution cannot bridge the gap that brings us to the appearance of Homo sapiens upon the earth. Now, the earth was prepared for the coming of man. Verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, this is the method of the creation of man. And again, we're limited in what God has told us. Physically, God took man out of the ground. It's quite interesting that our bodies are made up of about 15 or 16 chemical elements. Those same chemical elements are in the ground. Man was taken out of the dust of the ground physically. And if they would take you or me and boil us down and separate us into the separate chemical elements that we are, there was a time that it was worth $2.98. I'm told now we are worth about $3.98. You see, we're going up all the time. Now, that's what you are worth, because we were taken physically out of the dust of the ground. But you see, man is more than dust. Physically, dust he is, and to the dust he'll return. But his spirit's going to God. Why? Because God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, what did God breathe into him? Well, the breath of life. God gave man at this time life that is physical. That's psychological, by the way. And then he gave him life that is spiritual. And in other words, man now is brought into a marvelous relationship 
with his Creator. He has a capacity for God. He has that in his being. And by the way, that separates him from all other creatures that you find in God's universe as far as we know. Now, of course, there are the angels, and believe me, we know very little about them. Now, we find as we move along in this section that this man now that God has created, that the theistic evolutionists, you know, they say it was evolution up to here, and then God took this product of evolution, and this creation crowd also take that position. But may I say to you, any form of evolution cannot account for human speech. It cannot account for human conscience, and it cannot account for human individuality. These are three things that evolution just has a little difficulty with. It's mighty easy to take the bones of a man and compare them to the bones of some anthropoid, probably an ape, or to a horse. And there's striking similarity, I'm sure. And yet there's wide divergence there, I'm told. But nevertheless, I would expect a certain similarity because these creatures are to move in the same environment that we move in as human beings. And naturally, the chassis would have to be the same. Now, there is a very striking similarity between the chassis of a Ford automobile and a Chevrolet automobile. May I say, there is a definite similarity. But you better not tell that to your local automobile dealer, and certainly not to the Ford Motor Car Company or General Motors. They're going to tell you that there's a wide difference between the two. But there is a very striking similarity. When you see the chassis, you've got to have something fixed where you can have four wheels and put one at each corner. It has to be square to a certain extent. And that is the thing. Why? Because the Ford and the Chevrolet are both going to get stuck on the freeway 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and they have to be able to balance and have a motor in them, and so you'd have a similarity. But that doesn't mean they came out of the same factory. I feel today that there's been such an exaggeration made. Man is a different creature. God breathed into his breathing places the breath of life. Man became a living soul. Man is fearfully and wonderfully made, by the way, and that is something that we need to keep in mind. Now, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And I can't tell you where the Garden of Eden is. I'm sure it's somewhere in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. In fact, it may be the entire valley. That valley originally was a very fertile place, still is for that matter. It's part of that green crescent, that fertile crescent. And at one time, they didn't even plant grain there. They just harvested it and grew itself. Probably that area will become the very center of the earth again. Now, verse 9, "...and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree." that is pleasant to the sight, good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, these are unusual trees. 
that are mentioned specifically. You have the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I can't tell you much about them because, frankly, they are not around today. They've been removed from the scene. But there was every tree, and the trees, you notice, were pleasant to look at, and they were also good for food. There was the beauty of them and then the practical side of it, both of these that were combined. In other words, it's like going into a furniture store today and having a salesman there say, well, this article of furniture is very beautiful, but it's also very functional. Well, that was the important thing in the Garden of Eden. They had some beautiful trees, but they were functional. The fact of the matter is, very practical. They were good for food. This earth on which we live, you still see something of the beauty. In spite of the curse of the fall upon the earth, the fall of man, there is still the fact that it brings forth today the thorn and the thistle. There's still a beauty here. In a recent trip out to the Hawaiian Islands, we were on the island of Maui, and I'd never been to the place called Hana. I'd heard so much about it, and it's difficult to get to. We drove down that road. I have never been in such a fabulous, fantastic, and wonderful foliage in my life. It is beyond description. And we made a certain turn, and there are many turns to make. But we came up on a very scenic spot. And you could look down that coast, and a little peninsula was stuck out there. There were the coconut trees, the papaya trees, the hibiscus and the bananas and the bamboo, and a little church among those coconut trees, a church the missionaries started. And you just couldn't help but be startled as you stood there. In fact, so much so that I asked that the group pause and bow their heads in prayer, and we asked a member of our party to lead us in prayer that we were just privileged to see that spot. My, the Garden of Eden must have been a beautiful place. Now I read on, verse 10, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison. The same is it that compassed the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There's bedelium and the onyx stone. The name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compassed the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hidekel. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And I think the one in Ethiopia would be the Nile, and the Hidekel would be the Tigris. Verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden, to dress it and to keep it. Now, this man, remember, had dominion, and the forces of nature came into his beck and call. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now, it wasn't God's original intention for man to die, but man now is put on probation. You see, man has a free will, but 
Privilege always creates responsibility. That's an axiomatic statement today that is true. And this man who's now given a free will, he must be given a test whether he'll obey God or not. And we're not going to have a question of whether the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was poison. I think it was the best fruit in the garden. And the day he'd do it, he'd die. Now, he'd die. Remember, he's a trinity, and he'd have to die in a threefold way. He didn't die physically until over 900 years after this. But God says, in the day you eat, you shall die. Well, death means separation. He was separated from God spiritually the day he ate. You may be sure of that. Now we read in the Lord, God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helpmeet for him. Now there was a purpose in God putting man there for a period of time alone to show him that he had a need, that he needed someone to be with him. And now we are told that out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. Believe me, that man had to be a smart man to name all the animals. And some wag is said that when God brought an elephant to him and said to him, what shall we call this one? That Adam says, well, he looks more like an elephant than anything else. And I guess he did. Verse 20, And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a help. The word meat should not be here. A help for him. That is, one agreeing and answering to him. In other words, a helper as his counterpart. The other half of him. And a man is not half a man until he's married. And that, I think, is very important to see. I'm not here to promote marriage, and yet I would say that that is God's intention for both man and woman. And she's to answer to him. And notice what God did. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. Now, she's taken from Adam, from the side of Adam. And as Dr. Matthew Henry said years ago, God didn't take her from the head to be his superior or from his foot to be his inferior, but took her from his side to be equal with him, to be along with him. And that is exactly the purpose. She is to be the other half of man. And that's exactly what God meant when he said, Wives, obey your husbands. It means respond. It means answer to. You're the other part of it, the other half of him. He's only half a man. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And believe me, she was beautiful. Any woman today that you see that's beautiful, she inherited it originally from Mother Eve because there's no beauty that she didn't have. She was a doll, let me tell you. Now, she's the other half of Adam. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. 
And actually, the word for woman in the Hebrew is very similar to man, ish and isha. Very similar. Just the other part of man. She's the answer to man. And that's the reason that God intended man to take the lead. He created him first. But he created woman to just follow. And the man is the aggressor. And God even made him that way physically. He's the aggressor. And woman is the responder. And don't tell me that a wife has to love her husband. God doesn't say that. God says that she is to respond to him. Now, if he says to her, I love you, then you know what? She's going to say right back to him, I love you. She's to respond to him. When a man tells me today, and every now and then one does, you know, my wife is very cold. That's a dead giveaway that he's not really the kind of husband he should be. Because if he's the right kind of husband, she'll respond. Because he is the one to take the lead. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. In other words, he's now subject to his wife in the sense that he's responsible for her, and he's no longer under the control of father and mother. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. I think they were covered with some sort of a glory light. And may I say, I think this is the loveliest and the freshest account of the creation of woman and of man. Here is a couple that God really joined together. Now, there are certain things I think God's given to his people that they should obey. But God has given to the human race marriage. And that's one of the things men are trying to throw off today. Let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords from us. What's man trying to do? Well, he's trying to get rid of God, friends, because God is the one who established marriage. Now, you have in this chapter something quite wonderful. You have the creation of man. You have him where his place, what his occupation is, the condition that he's there with a responsibility. He had a need for a companion. And then God created a woman. There is to be an identity between the husband and the wife. And God says to the husband, Husbands, love your wives. This is the creation story. The man who was the chaplain at Nuremberg Prison tells about the last days that he had with those men one was Henry Gehring, and he tells about that, he says, the last evening, that evening around 8.30, I had a session with Gehring, during which he made sport of the story of creation, ridiculed divine inspiration of the Scriptures, and made outright denial of certain Christian fundamentals. Less than two hours later, he committed suicide. May I say one of the ways to get rid of this alarming suicide rate is to let men and women know they're a creature of God and they're responsible to their Creator. How important that is. We come today, friends, to the third chapter. And before we get into that, I move rather rapidly through the last part of chapter 2. And we were looking at the creation 
of woman that was in direct creation, for God took her out of man and to reveal the fact that she's part of man. And someone has put it like this, for woman is not undeveloped man, but diverse, not like to like, but like indifference. Yet in the long years, like her must they grow, till at the last she set herself to man like perfect music under noble words, distinct in individualities, but like each other, even as those who love. And may I say that this is one of the most beautiful stories and the most beautiful record. And we've seen now in chapter 2 man's kinship with God, man's worship of God, man's fellowship with God, man's service for God, man's loyalty to God, man's authority from God, and man's social life from and for God. That is the great message of chapter 2. Now we come to what some consider the most important chapter of the Bible. It's conceded, I think, by all conservative expositors to be just that. Dr. Griffith Thomas called chapter 3 the pivot of the Bible. And if you doubt that, read chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. Then omit chapter 3 and read chapters 4 and 11. And you'll find out that there's a tremendous vacuum that needs to be filled that something happened. For instance, in Genesis 1 and 2, we find man in innocence. Everything is perfection, and there's fellowship between God and man. But the minute you begin in chapter 4 of Genesis and don't go any farther than chapter 11, this first section, you find jealousy and anger and murder and lying and wickedness and corruption and rebellion and judgment. And the question is, where did it all come from? Where did it begin? Where did all the sin originate? Well, I don't think it originated actually in chapter 3 of Genesis. But as far as man is concerned, here is where it began. I'd like to read you a statement of another at this particular point. And he's speaking now of Genesis 3. He says here, "...here we trace back to their source many of the rivers of divine truth. Here commences the great drama which is being enacted on the stage of human history, and which well nigh six thousand years has not yet completed." Here we find the divine explanation of the present fallen and ruined condition of our race. Here we learn of the subtle devices of our enemy, the devil. Here we behold the utter powerlessness of man to walk in the path of righteousness when divine grace is withheld from him. Here we discover the spiritual effects of sin, man seeking to flee from God. Here we discern the attitude of God toward the guilty sinner. Here we mark the universal tendency of human nature to cover its own moral shame by a device of man's own handiwork. Here we are taught of the gracious provision which God has made to meet our great need. 
Here begins that marvelous stream of prophecy which runs all through the Holy Scriptures. Here we learn that man cannot approach God except through a mediator. May I say this is a tremendous statement, by the way. And we want to consider now chapter 3 more or less in depth. And we're spending a lot of time in these opening chapters because they are all important. And God is covering a great deal of ground in a very brief period of space, by the way. In this first section here, we have the, I think, very obvious fact of the setting for the temptation of man. Now, let me read beginning with verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, this creature here, we find, well, we raise a question. Why the temptation? And frankly, we're going to have to go back to chapters 1 and 2. Man was created innocent, and man was not created righteous, if you'll notice. Now, what is righteousness? Well, righteousness, it's innocence that's been maintained in the presence of temptation. You see, temptation will either develop or destroy you, do one of the two. And the Garden of Eden was not a hothouse. Man was not a hothouse plant. Character must be developed, and it can be developed only in the presence of temptation. And therefore, man was created a responsible being, and he was responsible to glorify, to obey, to serve, and to be subject to divine government. Man didn't create himself. I don't think anyone claims that. But God created him. And God was not, I think, arbitrary in this. God, you will recall, had said to man, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And it wasn't the only tree to eat of. It would have been a very arbitrary statement if man would have starved to death if he hadn't eaten of the tree and then be told he'd die if he did eat of it. There were an abundance, we're told, of trees there that bore fruit so that man didn't need to eat of this tree at all. Now, will you notice that man appears here on the scene, a responsible creature. Now we have here the temptation and the fall. And in this first verse I read, we are introduced to the serpent. And immediately the question can reasonably be answered, well, where in the world did he come from? How did he get in the Garden of Eden? And I have something to say to you at this connection that as far as I can tell from the Word of God, friends, the serpent was there not as a slithering creature, And we're not told how he came there. We're just told he was there. You see, the Word of God leaves a great deal out. But he was a creature that could be used of Satan, and Satan used him. Well, isn't that exactly the 
method that he uses even today. Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, 14, No marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. And we find out that, especially in the book of Revelation, where more is said about him there than anywhere else, it is said the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. This creature was not a slithering snake as we think of it today. That's not the picture that the Word of God gives of him at all. We're told in Revelation 22, he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan bound him a thousand years. So this is a creature with tremendous ability. Now, there's no record of his origin here at all. Now, I do not want to be dogmatic yet, but I am when we get to it. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, I think, give us the origin of this creature and also how he became the creature that he was. Now, why in the world, and I want to read this next verse now and ask the question first, why in the world did the serpent approach the woman? Why didn't he approach the man? Let me read. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now, you see, woman was created last, and she got her information from the man. You see, God had told Adam when he created him, that he could eat of every tree of the garden, but of this one he was not to eat of. So the woman had gotten her information secondhand, got it from man. And so he approached woman first. And frankly, I think that woman was created in a finer way than man was created, but also one who probably was open to this type of thing more than a man would be. Actually, I think a woman really has a nature that probably is more inquisitive than a man. Also, she is the one today that you find goes into the cults and isms more than anyone else and leads men into it. In fact, most of the founders of cults and ism have been women. And the serpent knew, Satan knew what he was doing. And you notice what he did. He had a very subtle method as he came here. He asked her this question, and he casts doubt on the Word of God. And he excites her curiosity, and he questions the love and the goodness and the righteousness and the holiness of God. Notice what happens. Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. You see, raises a doubt in her mind, excites her curiosity. And she answered, Why, we can eat of all the trees, but this tree, God has told us, ye shall not eat of it. And that ended. That's all God said. But she added something, Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. I don't find where he ever said you're not to touch it. And then the serpent said, unto the woman, 
And let me change our translation a little. Instead of saying, ye shall not surely die, he said, ye certainly shall not die. Why, that is just absolutely impossible. You see, he questions the love of God and the goodness of God. If God's good, why did he put that restriction down? And if God is righteous, well, he says he's not righteous because you won't die. And it questions the holiness of God. You're going to be God yourself. For God doth know that in the days ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as God's knowing good and evil. May I say to you that this is the thing that she did. She added to the Word of God. And the liberal and the atheist takes from the Word of God, and God warned against that. And the cults and some fundamentalists, by the way, add to the Word of God, and God warns against that. And there are those that say that today we're saved by law. Oh, they say, yes, faith, but it's faith plus something else. And they're apt to come up with anything. This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. John six twenty nine. How important that is. Now, you see here, he very subtly contradicts God, and he substitutes his word for it. Remember, we called attention in Romans to the fact of the obedience of faith. Faith leads to obedience, and disobedience leads to unbelief. You see, doubt leads to disobedience always. Now, will you notice? And when the woman saw, notice that, that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, you notice the appeal that he made here is quite an interesting appeal. It was an appeal to the flesh. But that's not all. That's not really the thing that is really important. It's pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. It was an appeal to the flesh, uh, an appeal, if you please, to the psychological part of mine is mine and a tree to be desired to make one wise. And that is an appeal to the religious side of man. And if you'll check this, and I'm not taking time to deal with that today, you'll find out that's exact temptation that Satan brought to the Lord Jesus. First of all, make these stones into bread. It's good to eat. And then he told him, I'll give him the kingdoms of the world. I tell you, what an appeal that is. And showed him the kingdoms of the world. Pleasant to the eyes, appeal to the mind. And then a tree to be desired to make one wise. Cast yourself down from the temple. And do you know that today, I don't think he's changed his tactics. He uses the same tactics with you and me. And I think the reason that he still uses the same tactics is because it works. He doesn't need to change his tactics. We all seem to fall for the same line. And John wrote, for all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh... That's it, good to eat, the lust of the eyes, good to look at, the pride of life, cast yourself down from the temple. These things are not of the Father, but of the world. Now, this is an appeal 
that he makes. Jesus said that these sins of the flesh, though, come out of the heart of man, way down deep. And this is where he's making his appeal, you see. That's where he's going in after man in a very definite way. And it's this method, frankly, that he's using here in order that he might reach in and that he might lead mankind astray. Well, he did it. You see, they were told they'd know good and evil. And what happened? Well, we have the result of the fall of man. The eyes of them both were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Well, what do we have here? Well, we have their eyes open. That is their conscience. You see, man before the fall did not have a conscience. He's innocent. Innocence is ignorance of evil. Man did not make conscience. May I say that there is an accuser that each one of you and I have lives on the inside of us. The psychologist says today that we all have a guilt complex. A leading psychologist in a university here in Southern California who's a Christian said to me that the guilt complex is much a part of man as his right arm is, and he can no more get rid of that guilt complex in a psychological way than you can get rid of the arm except by amputating it. And they knew they were naked. These fig leaves concealed, but did not cover, really. And they did not confess. They just attempted to cover up their sin. The eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves apron. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Have you ever noticed that the tree that is here, they sowed fig leaves together, and that's the only tree that's mentioned. The tree that uh, knowledge of good and evil is not an apple tree. I don't know what it was, but I'm almost sure it wasn't an apple tree. They sowed the fig leaves. They were not ready to admit their lost condition. And that is the condition of man today in religion. He goes through exercises and rituals, and he joins churches, and he becomes very religious. Have you ever noticed Christ cursed the fig tree? <laughs> Quite interesting. And he denounced religion right after that, by the way. He denounced it with all of his being. You see, Satan in this temptation wanted to come between the soul and God. In other words, he wanted to wean man from God, win man over to himself and to become the God of man. The temptations, you see, of the flesh would not have appealed to man in that day anyway. He wasn't tempted to steal or lie to covet. He was just tempted to doubt God. What was the trouble of the rich young ruler? Didn't believe. You have the parable of the sower. The seed didn't fall on good ground. Well, the parable of the tares. You see, here are those that would not believe God. Satan's method, you see. First, saw it was good for food. Second, it's pleasant to the eye and to be desired. 
He works from the outside to the inside, without to within. And God begins with man's heart. Have you ever noticed that? Religion is something you rub on the outside. God doesn't begin with religion. And may I make a distinction here? Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is Christ. There are a lot of religions. And the Lord Jesus, he went right to the very fountainhead. He said, ye must be born again. And then he said to the Pharisees, who were very religious on the outside, he says, make the inside of the platter clean. Why, he said, you're just like a mausoleum, beautiful on the outside, with marble and flowers, but inside dead men's bones. What a picture. Their eyes were open, their conscience, and they knew they were naked. May I say to you, there's no really new style in fig leaves. Men are still going to church and going through religious exercises and good works. And what happened? When they heard the voice of the Lord God in the garden, they ran from God. Religion will separate you from God. And Adam's lost. The Lord God called unto him and said, Where are you, Adam? Adam's lost. It's God seeking him and not man seeking God. There's no confession on his part. Will you notice that? He says, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commandest thee that thou should not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. The important thing there is not so much that he blamed the woman, or as we'd say in common colloquialism of the day, pass the buck, but there's no confession of sin on his part. Now, we're going to see the judgment of the fall. He will first ask the woman, the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. My, here's some more of that so-called buck passing. We have now come to the judgment of the fall, and that is in verse 14. May I say that we have now seen this man, this creature that God has made, turned aside from God, and now God must deal with him. God must judge him. And I'm reading in verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this thing, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Now, all we can say about this is that the serpent is certainly not the slithering creature that we think of today. He was different at the beginning. There has been pronounced upon him this judgment. And now God pronounces a judgment upon Satan, which has a tremendous effect upon man. And I would have you memorize this verse, if you are one who does memorize Scripture. But here is one that you certainly ought to know. Actually, this is the first prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, the Savior, into the world. Let me read it, verse 15. 
and I will put enmity between thee, that is, Satan and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It, that is, Christ, shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, this is a tremendous statement that is given to us here, and I think that the most prominent thought that we have here is not the ultimate victory that would come, but the long-continued struggle. It reveals the fact that now there's to be a long struggle between good and evil. And that is exactly what you're going to find in the rest of the Scripture. For instance, the Lord Jesus could make the statement in John 8, 44, concerning this struggle. And let me read that. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he's a liar and the father of it. Now that is, if you please, that is Satan. And that is God's judgment, you see. And now this distinction is made, and there's going to be this conflict. John again mentions it in 1 John 3.10. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. So that now we have brought before us the fact that here is a conflict, here is a struggle, here are two seeds in the world, but there would be the final victory. But the long-continued struggle is important. Every man must face temptation, must win his battle, if you please. Now, before Christ came, the victory was through obedience and faith. After Christ came, we're to identify ourselves with Christ through faith. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be in Christ. And now we see this man. He was one of three orders of creation, angels, man, and animals. Animals were given no choice, but men and angels were given a choice. And here you have, if you please, man's choice. And he's held responsible for the decision that he's made here. And he's made a decision. And you'll notice something else. It says her seed. It doesn't say the man's seed. Here is at least the suggestion of the virgin birth. When God went into that garden looking for man, he said, "'Where art thou?' And any anthology of religion tells the story of man's search for God. My friend, that's not the way God tells it. Let's tell it like it is. Salvation is God's search for man. Man ran away from him. And when God said, Where art thou? Dr. Griffith Thomas says, This is the call of divine justice, which cannot overlook sin. And it's the call of divine sorrow, which grieves over the sinner. And it's the call of divine love which offers redemption from sin. You have all of that 
in this verse here, the promise of the coming of the Savior. And this is the picture all the way through Scripture. Paul wrote, "...there's none that seeketh after God." And the Lord Jesus said, "...you've not chosen me, I've chosen you." And we can say today, we love him because he first loved us. Now God seeks out man, and he offers man salvation. But there's going to be a long struggle that's going to take place which I think is made very clear to us at this particular point. Now, as we move on down here, every man, every man now is going to have to make his decision. That is what is given. Under the woman, he said, I'll greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband. He shall rule over thee. That's a judgment upon woman. She can't bring a child into the world without sorrow. Isn't that an interesting thing, that that should be true? The very thing that brings joy into the life, continues the human family, has to come through sorrow. That's life, if you please. And man needs to learn that. And we'll see in the next chapter he didn't learn it as quickly as he should. Unto Adam he said... Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. This is the judgment upon man. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Now notice Genesis 3:19. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Now death comes to man. It did not come physically. After all, what is death? Well, physical death is a separation of the person, the spirit, the soul, from the body. The body, the writer to Ecclesiastes says, goes down to the dust, but the Spirit returns unto God who gave it. You see, man ultimately must answer to God, whether he's saved or lost. He's going to have to answer to God. But you see, Adam didn't die physically the day that he ate. He didn't die until 900 and some odd years later. What about that? Well, the whole point is just simply this, that... He died spiritually. He was separated from God. You see, death is separation. Paul said to the Ephesians that they were dead in trespasses and sins. Well, they weren't dead physically, but they were dead spiritually, separated from God. And you remember our Lord in that wonderful parable of the prodigal son. He told about this boy that got away from the father. And when he returned... The father said to the eldest son, This my son, who was dead, (laughs) he is found. Dead? Sure, he's dead. Not physically, but he was separated from the father. And to be separated from the father means just simply that, and means death. And 
you remember the Lord Jesus said to those two sisters, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead. Dead how? Spiritually. That is separated from God. Now, man died the moment he ate. That's the reason he ran away from God. That's the reason he sowed fig leaves. And believe me, those fig leaves tell quite a story. I think, frankly, as we're going to see now that when God now clothes man, and notice this, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And at this time, I'm sure Cain and Abel had been born after the fall. Now will you notice verse 21, "...unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them." And you'll find that in order to have the skins of animals, the animals have to be slain. They just don't go around without their skins, you see. And so these animals were slain. And I believe that this is the origin of sacrifice, that God made it clear to man. Now, when God rejected the fig leaves, and now he makes skins, and when Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, they looked back upon a bloody sacrifice, and they saw the cherubim there, as we shall see in a moment. And when they left the Garden of Eden and looked back, they saw exactly what God had Moses put on the mercy seat, two cherubim looking down upon the blood that was there, and that was the way to God. Now, will you notice that I think there are four great lessons here that we see from the fig leaves now and the fact God clothes them. Number one is man must have adequate covering to approach God. You can't come to God just as you are. That is, if you're bringing good works with you, you must come just as you are, a sinner. That's the way that you come. And number two, fig leaves are unacceptable. They're homemade. God doesn't take a homemade garment. Number three, God must provide the covering. And then number four, the covering is only obtained through the death of the Lord Jesus. May I say to you, man must have a substitute between him and God's wrath. And that's important and even in these days, for man to consider. You know, the hardest thing in the world is for man to take his rightful position before God. And I have a little poem here. It's on prayer that I think reveals even in our own hearts the necessity of this. Listen to this. I ask for strength that I might achieve. He'd made me weak that I might obey. I ask for health that I might do greater things. I was given grace that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of man. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I receive nothing that I ask for, all that I hope for. My prayer was answered. May I say to you, salvation comes when you and I take our proper place as a sinner before God. 
Now will you notice verse 22 of Genesis 3, "...and the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree, and eat, and live forever." Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. And then all I can say to that is, thank God, that God did not let him live eternally in sin, that God's not going to let him do that. And that's really a blessing. Verse 24, So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way, to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, that doesn't mean that he put up a roadblock. It really means that the way of life was kept open for man to God, and now it doesn't come through the tree of life, but now salvation must come through a sacrifice. And when man looked back, as I've indicated, this is what he saw.